Father, the scripture tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And Father, we do pray for that city and for that country in the midst of the chaos which has impacted it over these, uh, virtually from the hour of its birth in 1948. And yet, Father, you've preserved that nation over these 50 years. And we pray for for your peace. We pray for the wisdom of God to be uh, given to the leadership and uh, for your will to be done and for for your people to have the right mind and the right attitude. We know, Father, that right now there are a bunch of people over there who have strange ideas about the end times and are creating havoc and and, uh, problems. And we just pray that, Lord, any of them who might be true believers will have their eyes open and and will walk faithfully with you and and not be a part of uh, the problem. Father, we ask you to bless us here today, to guide us in our study of your word. We ask that the plan and purpose of God will be fulfilled in our lives this hour and this day. Bless throughout our our church this morning as uh, the word is being taught from the little children to adults and in the church service. We ask, Lord, that above everything else, you, you will be glorified and your will will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll turn to the 10th chapter of the book of Joshua. I would like to read the first five verses of Joshua 10. Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king. And that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within the land that he feared greatly because because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hom, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Laish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Laish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up. They with all their armies, and they camped by Gibeon and fought against it. In this passage, we have a description of the formation of a southern confederacy of Canaanites for the purpose of opposing Israel's presence in the land, for the purpose of of stalling off the inevitable, of course, uh, as we look at it. Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem is responsible for organizing this alliance. He sends out word to these other four royal cities and asks the the kings to join in alliance with him. Uh, And the purpose is to, first of all, punish Gibeon for defecting, (laughs) for joining the enemy, as it were, and, and dealing with them, first of all. Now, what is very interesting, discovering that the king of Jerusalem back in the days of Abraham was Melchizedek, which has a very similar meaning, king of Jerusalem, king of peace, king of righteousness. What, what, what comes from this is that we understand that the title of the king, of the Jebusite king of Jerusalem, is what we're referring to here. This is not a personal name. This is a title like Pharaoh. Lord of Righteousness apparently was the name given to, the title given to the king of Jerusalem, whatever his actual personal name was. 
And it's, it's very interesting because obviously this man has nothing to do with biblical righteousness. And so it's, a, uh, it's an interesting view. Melchizedek, of course, as he was encountered during Abraham's day, became a type name, of course, for Jesus and, and shows up again in Hebrews. And we're made, it's made quite clear to us that uh, this person at that time, whoever the person was, we, mo- we generally believe it was an incarnation of Jesus Christ, was one who became the example of the difference between what Jesus came to do and, of course, what the priests of Israel uh, were capable of doing. But whatever the case is, Jerusalem's security, as viewed by the, by the Jebusites, who were the inhabitants of Jerusalem, uh, was, was severely compromised by the defection of Gibeon and its three satellite cities, by the defection of the Hivite nation. Uh, Gibeon was a large town, and if you go to the site of Gibeon today, you can see it was a fairly large town. There actually is an Arab village today on the site, but the site itself is, extends beyond the modern village of Gibeon. And as I mentioned to you last time, it, one of the major wells in all of Jerusalem, I, I'm sorry, in all of Israel, is there, and you, you can go down in it and you can see this uh, important well that was part of maintaining uh, this uh, large and powerful city. We're told in the passage that Gibeon was larger than Ai, and that we, we discover, if you, if you look at a map, that it was located only about six or seven miles north of Jerusalem. Not very far, of course, today, in, in the, by the means which we travel. And so obviously, Gibeon, with its three related cities, one only a couple of miles away, the others a few miles further, but all kind of forming a, a little quadrangle there, could help to form a shield for Jerusalem. They could field a fairly large army, an uh, army larger than Joshua had to deal with, with Ai and Bethel, and uh, therefore this was a serious uh, problem for the king of Jerusalem. I, I think that as we look at this, we discover that the very least that the king of Jerusalem hoped to get out of this was to punish Gibeon and to render her unable to aid Joshua. I think this was the very least he hoped to get out of this. The most that he hoped to get out of this would be to force the Hivites to reverse their their program and to divorce the Israelites and rejoin the Canaanites and thus help form a, a more secure defense against the presence of Israel in the land. Now, the other cities that are located, I'm sorry, that were allied with Jerusalem are all located to the south and southwest of Jerusalem. The furthest away was Eglon. Eglon is down on the edge of the coastal plain in the southern part of Canaan. And Eglon was about 40 miles by road from Jerusalem. So that's the distance that had to be kept in mind here as this confederacy was formed up. We're told in this passage that the confederacy was led by Amorite kings. Again, going back to mention I've made before, the term Amorite, like the term Canaanite, is often used generically for the peoples. It did not mean that the people of Jerusalem were ethnically Amorites because they were not. They were Jebusites. But the term Amorite was frequently used for all the Western Westerners. In fact, the word Amorite basically means Westerner. And uh, so it's kind of used collectively here for these kings, although they were ethnically, or I should say culturally, linguistically, of, of different uh, origins. The representatives of the Confederacy, I'm sure, met with the Hivites first of all. 
they probably said, hey, you guys, uh, let's have a meeting and let's talk about what you've done here. And let's find out why have you defected? Why have you made this alliance? Why have you made this peace treaty with Joshua and with Israel? And of course, as they continued their discussion, they found that the, the Hivites were implacable. They, they were not going to move off of their situation. I mean, after all, they're next on Joshua's hit list. You know, that's the way they felt about it. And so after looking at what happened to Jericho and what happened to Ai and Bethel, they didn't want that to happen. And so they had gone ahead and made this, this alliance. And their feeling was, we have more to fear from Joshua and Israel than we have to fear from you. So, sayonara. <laughs> Probably didn't say that, but you know. Um, <laughs> au revoir. I think then what happened was that the king of Jerusalem called the other kings together with their foreign ministers or whoever, and they had a little council. Well, the Gibeonites are not going to rejoin us, so what shall we do? And, and they came up with a solution. Well, we're going to have to knock off Gibeon. We're going to have to either force her to join us or render her useless to Israel. So they decided to put together an allied army and to invest the city of Gibeon. What is interesting about this is that if you go back to the, the 15th verse of the previous chapter, that is chapter 9, we, we read that Joshua made peace with them, that's the Hivites, and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Well, that event is then followed by all of these things we've been talking about. And of course, there was no email in those days and no telephone in those days. So all this had to be done by people traveling back and forth. How, how did the king of Jerusalem create this confederacy? He had to send runners down to Eglon as far away as 40 miles and, and have discussion there and, and back and forth uh, communication. And then they had to go visit the Gibeonites. They had to go have their council. They had to decide what to do. They had to form up an army. They had to bring it up to Gibeon. I mean, we're not talking about troops being brought in by Galaxy C5s here, you know. We're talking about people having to walk all the way here. And, and so I think between the 15th verse of chapter 9 and the 5th verse of chapter 10, we're looking at several weeks of time. We have to be looking at several weeks of time, passage of time here, for all of these events to take place. So obviously, after the capture of Ai and Bethel and the trip up to Shechem, where Israel did their, um, you know, amen, amen thing on the slopes of, of Ebal and Gerizim, they went back to Gilgal and kind of rested up for a while, uh, you know, because we're, we're talking about several weeks of time passing before they, they launched into the further invasion of the land. Well, let's read on here in chapter 10, beginning with verse 6. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confronted them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And it came about, as they fled before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, 
that the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. I, I don't think either the leaders of Gibeon or Joshua and his leaders realized how quickly their peace treaty and, and mutual assistance treaty would be called upon. <laughs> I mean, you know, they make this treaty, okay, we'll have peace between us, and it's kind of like, okay, we, we probably won't have to worry about this for months, maybe even years, and here within just a few weeks already, messengers coming down saying, we're being attacked, you've got to come and help us. Well, the Confederation Army marched up to Gibeon. And the Confederation Army laid siege to the city. We don't ha have any idea how large this army was, except that it was in the multiple thousands and possibly multiple tens of thousands. We, we have to recall the fact that we have a tendency almost to look at uh, Canaan as if it were a land of, of a bunch of uh, medieval castles and everything in between was barren. Obviously, Jerusalem and Eglon and Hebron and the rest of these cities were city-states. There was, yes, the walled city of Eglon, but out around it were probably scores of square miles of, of hinterland that belonged to Eglon and upon which there was a population in smaller villages. And so we're talking about not just recruiting troops from within the city itself, but from within the entire city-state. And so as these five were put together, now they are the royal cities, each one has a king, uh, they are able to field an army of probably several thousand each. And so the united army, as it came up to Gibeon, even though Gibeon was a large city with valiant men, we're told in here, um, this attack was overwhelming unless they had some help. And so as the investing army showed up, I think the very first night, the Gibeonites snuck somebody out through the wall to slink away through the dark night and, and to get down to Gilgal and to inform the Israelites. Gilgal, as we have noted before, was located almost due east of Gibeon, 17 miles down in the valley of the Jordan River. What's interesting as we read through this passage is we, we read that sixth verse, which it says what happened, and, and then in the seventh verse it says, So Joshua went up from Gilgal. I mean, we're not talking about any hesitancy here, at least no written or recorded hesitancy. No stopping and saying, well, I don't know if we better just do this right away. Maybe we better think about it for a while. No, it seems like Joshua responded very, very quickly to the appeal. After all, First of all, he is not being asked to fight anybody he wasn't going to have to fight anyway. <laughs> and, you know, maybe this is a better thing because the armies of all those cities are now right in one spot. And if we can overwhelm them here, those cities will be easier to capture later on than attacking them with their full complement of uh, soldiers inside their walls. And so with thousands of warriors, we're not given an idea here how many men, but I think thousands, possibly tens of thousands of warriors, uh, Joshua began the ascent of the escarpment up to Gibeon. The ascent, as I mentioned to you before, from, from Gilgal to Gibeon, the vertical difference is approximately 3,400 feet, and the distance is 17 miles. So in 17 miles, they had to climb 3,400 feet up to the elevation of Gibeon. So it was a bit of a task for the men to get up there, but they did it very, very quickly. But what is really key, I think, to this whole thing is verse 8. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So here they are. Joshua has made the decision to lead an army to the help of Gibeon. And on the way, the Lord comes and says to him, I'm with you. Now, to me, this is, a, I mean, this is an overwhelming demonstration of God's grace and of God's mercy. Because there wouldn't be this problem if Joshua hadn't made this treaty with the Gibeonites. And Joshua made this treaty with the Gibeonites because, remember back in the 14th verse of the previous chapter, he did not ask for the Lord's counsel. I mean, the whole problem is because Joshua had not sought the Lord's mind. He'd made a decision on his own without seeking God's guidance, and this decision will have hundreds of years of ongoing repercussion. And God could have said to Joshua, you blew it, buddy. I'm going to pick somebody else now. But what does God do? In the fulfillment of the very treaty that he should have made, God comes to him and says, I'll be with you, and none of them are going to stand against you. Which is a reaffirmation of the promise that God had made to Joshua back at the camp before they ever crossed the Jordan River, back on the plains of Moab. God had said to Joshua, I will be with you all your life, and not a man will stand before you throughout your years. And God is saying, I have not withdrawn that promise from you. In spite of what you've done, I have not withdrawn that promise to you. In verse 8, God was reaffirming his promise so that Joshua could go ahead in absolute confidence that he is doing the right thing and that God will be with him and that they will have the victory. This, I think, is very important because as we serve the Lord, we need to have the confidence that he is working with us and through us and accomplishing his will in our lives. Because if we don't have that confidence, we have this sense of, you know, of being at sixes and sevens, you know, rootless, anchorless, not knowing what to do next. We have to have this confidence that God is leading us and God is strengthening us and God is using us. It's very, very important. And of course, that's one of the reasons we have the scripture. Because as we read the scripture, God keeps saying to us, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And, and goes on in so many different venues to describe how he will be with us as we walk in obedience to him. And so he brings this promise to Joshua so that the confidence will be there, that the victory will be overwhelmingly theirs. The passage doesn't say, but I, I, I feel it's very probable that God came and spoke to him because Joshua cried out to him. I th knowing the character of Joshua as we do up to this point, I think, he, I think he said, Lord, I blew it just a few weeks ago. I'm not blowing it again. What shall I do? He's asking God's counsel. God's saying, go for it because you will have the victory. I think there's a powerful message here for us. And, and that is, we, we should not go into any undertaking or any task without the counsel of the Lord without seeking God's guidance. And in some cases, we need to really get all the counseling we can if, it, if it's a really big thing, like, oh, I've decided I'm going to move to uh, Calgary, you know. Really? <laughs> Why have you made that decision? 
Well, you know, uh, even in small decisions, we need the counsel of the Lord. And in bigger decisions, I think that counsel has to be sought by, by many different channels. I think when God speaks to us to confirm or to guide us differently from the way we're leaning, that we get that wisdom through His Word. We get that wisdom through godly counselors. And we can get that wisdom through the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us either a sense of peace or a sense of dis-ease, <laughs> of unrest. That, that's a little bit more dangerous one because sometimes our emotions can get in the way and we can say, yeah, I just really feel good about this, uh, you know, because it's our desire to do it. But it may not really be God's desire to happen. And so it's really important for us to seek the counsel of the Lord as we make decisions and as we embark upon tasks. In Proverbs chapter 24, we read these words, beginning at verse 3. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. And of course, we have to understand that there. Uh, the word riches does not necessarily mean, you know, that you're looking at golden ornaments hanging all over your house. Uh, I think it has to do with the riches of the spirit, uh, primarily. Five, verse 5, A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases in power. For by wise guidance you will wage war, and in an abundance of counselors there is victory. You know, we often hear, sometimes proudly, stated that somebody, somebody always lives life with his cards close to his chest. In other words, he makes his own decisions and he doesn't seek counsel from the outside. Well, that's sometimes looked upon as a sign of strength, but I think it's more of a sign of stupidity uh, because uh, most of us are not wise enough to make wise decisions all the time, and particularly if they are big decisions that are not clear and I think the counsel that we get from wise and godly people is very, very important in helping us to cut through and to see things that we may not see as a problem. That if we go ahead and do this, uh, open our eyes. Most of us are well aware of the fact that uh, men view things one way and women view things another way. And if you're a married couple and one of them just decides to make this major decision without really uh, the participation of the other, it can be disaster painted pink, you know. So it's very important, I think, that as believers we seek wise counsel before we jump into things that can, can really uh, change our lives or those of someone else. By marching all night, Joshua was able to arrive probably fairly early in the morning near the walls of Gibeon and to fall upon the Amorite army totally by surprise. Totally by surprise. Now, the Amorites knew of the pact. That's why they were investing Gibeon. And they knew that the, that the Gibeonites, the Hivites, and, and the Israelites had a peace treaty between them. But I think the Amorites were hoping that, first of all, maybe the Israelites would be too fearful to come to the aid of Gibeon. Failing that, I, I think they hoped that Israel would hem and haw about it for a while and give the, the uh, Confederacy long enough to, to take the city. And so when uh, Israelites showed up on the scene, it would be too late, the city would have fallen. Or thirdly, that at least they would have had warning that Israel was coming, the very least. But none of those hopes were fulfilled. 
Every single one failed. And we could ask, why? And the answer is, of course, as the, as the four-year-old answers to every question from the Bible, God. <laughs> he is responsible. Can you imagine? The, the Amorites know that there's this alliance between the Hivites and Israel. So can you imagine them not thinking that Israel might come to help the Gibeonites? As a result, they must have sent out scouts. And those scouts should have been standing on the rocks, you know, looking for Israel. It's possible that they forgot to do that. We might say, how could that be? God has the perfect capacity to cause people to forget things that they should have remembered. Or otherwise, he, they could have sent out the scouts, but the scouts just looked off into the night and didn't see a thing. It, it reminds me, although this has nothing to do with scripture, and I'm not sure what role God played in this, but when, when, when Napoleon sent his army from the, the port of Toulon to Alexandria or, or to Egypt, where he was going to launch an attack against Egypt and open a way for getting over to India so he could hurt the British, the, the British were, were watching and waiting for his fleet to leave, but a storm blew the British ships away, and so when they got back on sight, the port was empty, and so then he chased off looking for Napoleon's fleet. And they sailed all across the Mediterranean looking for Napoleon's fleet. And, and the best can be determined is that on one dark night, the two fleets actually passed each other in the dead of night. Now, the Mediterranean's not a very big sea, and yet one fleet apparently just sailed right past the other because Nelson got to Egypt before Napoleon. Of course, Napoleon had stopped at Malta to capture the little island and, and its treasury and, and all of that. But anyway, uh, Nelson got there before. He says, well, I thought he was coming here, but he's not here, so he took off around the Mediterranean looking for him and then finally came back later and found that's where he was headed and he was there. And, and they had passed in the dead of night two fleets. I mean, we're talking about dozens of ships. Anyway, it's very possible that spy scouts were sent out, but they didn't see a thing. Not only because it was night, but because God caused them to not see a thing. Whatever was the case, Israel fell upon the Amorite confederation as it surrounded the city of Gibeon. And so the investors were invested. The besiegers were besieged as Israel came headlong into the encamped army that was around the city of Gibeon. And we're told in the passage that God so confounded them that they ran off in total disarray and they fled down the ridge away from Gibeon. Pell-mell down the ridge. They were routed and they ran down the Beth Horon Ridge. Now the Beth Horon Ridge is a ridge that is very, very important in the history of this little land because it has been the primary route by which Babylonian and Assyrian and Egyptian and even British in the 19th century would come up into the highlands to attack Jerusalem and its environs. The Beth Horon Ridge is, is a route that is of most easy access from the lowlands up into the Judean highlands from the west. And uh, on this ridge, you have two towns called Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon. And as you go down that ridge, which uh, on your map is probably not all that easy to see, if you can find the city of Gibeon, which is right here, it angles just slightly to the northwest of Gibeon. And you see Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon. It angles that way. So they're fleeing down this ridge towards the west to try to escape from Israel. 
And we're told that they were slaughtering, that Israel was slaughtering them as they fled. I've mentioned this to you before. There was a major article that came out in, I think it was U.S. News months ago, in which their author was a military historian, and he points out the fact that in, in ancient history, as they have looked at the um, evidences that have been dug up and, and survived in literature, that the vast number of deaths that occurred in most ancient battles was by being stabbed in the back. You're, you're running like crazy to get away from the enemy and he's shooting you and throwing things and chasing you across this landscape. And you know, when you're fleeing, you're panicked and you don't do wise things and you throw your weapons away. This is, to me, as thinking of it from my perspective, I think, how could a person flee, uh, throw his weapon away? I mean, how can you defend yourself? Well, of course, you're not thinking rationally when you panic. You just, ah, let me out of here. Kind of like John Mark, you know, at the, <laughs> at the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, he fled even without his clothes. <laughs> That's pretty panicked, I would think. <laughs> and so they're fleeing down, and, and Israel is slaughtering them one after the other down the ridge. And, you know, the distance, we're told that they fled clear to Azekah. Well, if you go down the Beth Horon Ridge, and you get the end of the ridge, you come to the Elon Valley, you hang a sharp right, uh, left, and you head south, and Azekah's down there. I mean, we're talking about 25 miles from Gibeon down the Beth Horon Ridge to Azekah. 25 miles. So they're chasing these guys 25 miles across the landscape. That's like from here almost to Red Bluff. Well, as the enemy fled, God intervened. And we're told that God created a miracle in the sense that he brought in a tremendous thunderstorm which dropped hailstones large enough to kill. Now, yesterday we were in a little bit of a hailstorm and it covered the street so that it was almost like snow was on the ground. And it was pounding away pretty intensely there, but I knew if I were out in it, it might be a little bit stingy, but I probably wouldn't die. So, but you can imagine if uh, what these were. I don't know if these were bowling ball size or what it takes. I, I've never been in a hailstorm with hail bigger than maybe a nickel in diameter, so, you know, what would it take? <laughs> Dr. Hardy, you have any idea? A big one. A big one, okay. <laughs> I've seen cars that have been out in, uh, in one, and uh, from the size of the, the dents, it looked like about golf ball size, uh, but I've heard of, well, they say grapefruit size. I can't imagine how a grapefruit size hailstone could stay in the air <laughs> till it got that big. <laughs> Because <laughs> they say it's, you know, updraft that keeps blowing it up and blowing it up and freezing on more and more layers. But, you know, how much wind, it takes quite a bit of wind to blow a grapefruit up, <laughs> up, I would think. G-O-D. Gotcha. <laughs> Very good, yes. Anyway, whatever size these were, <laughs> they were slaughtering the Amorites, and the scripture tells us that more died from hailstones than from the Israeli swords and spears. And Israel's running down this same ridge, and they weren't getting it. That, that reminds us, I think, it should at least, did me, of the uh, passage back in Exodus when we had the, uh, the plague back there, you know, and in chapter 9 of Exodus, we read that and, the, and God sent this plague on Egypt, and the hail struck all that was in the field through, ever, through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. 
Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel lived, <coughs> lived pardon me, there was no hail. Now, hail that shatters trees, that's powerful hail. So anyway, these people were being pummeled to death. Well, you know, God told Israel that the way you're supposed to carry out execution is by stoning. <laughs> well, God was stoning the enemies here, and the Amorites were being slaughtered. Well, let's go further, in, beginning at verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, O moon, in the valley of Elon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it. When the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel, then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp to Gilgal. They had been fighting all day from early in the morning, chasing these guys down the Beth Horon Ridge into the valley of Elon. And thousands had been killed by their sword and thousands more had been killed by the hailstones. But Joshua was afraid that the survivors would make an escape in the darkness as it was getting later in the day. And he wanted the destruction to be total. And so, under the divine inspiration of God, he prayed this incredible prayer. We talk about incredible prayers in the scripture. This has got to be one of the most incredible. If this were not a divinely inspired prayer, it would be probably the most presumptuous prayer in the Bible. Son, stop! When, when Jesus was here, he stilled the storm, but he didn't stop the sun. Now, I don't think Joshua understood what that meant. You know, I don't think Joshua thought, well, you know, now if I pray this prayer, that means the earth has to cease rotating on its axis. And, you know, there could be certain ramifications from that uh, that might be lasting, and therefore maybe I shouldn't pray that prayer. No, I don't think he thought that at all. But in the heat of battle, inspired by God, he cried out that the sun would be frozen and the moon would be frozen in their positions, that the day would be extended is what he was asking for. As much as 24 additional hours of daylight may have been added. This is Joshua's longest day. It is one of the most criticized passages of Scripture in the entire Old Testament. It is criticized because it is thought to be pure mythology. And since it's pure mythology, and it's stuck in the middle of the Scripture here as if it were true, people begin, therefore, to question the actual authority of, a, of Scripture itself. Its divine inspiration is questioned, and people start looking at it and saying, well, you know, this can't be really true, therefore, some other things possibly aren't true either, therefore, there probably have never been any miracles, and as a result, you start tearing the Bible apart, and you end up with, with the Jefferson's Bible, you know, Thomas Jefferson's Bible, where he clipped out everything that seemed miraculous or even related to the miraculous. Didn't leave him much Bible. What is interesting about this is that although scientists have looked at this and said, yeah, right, you know, there are historians and anthropologists who have recorded that in cultures from all over the world, there are records from ancient times of a, of a doubly long day or a doubly long night. 
It's just like I, I mentioned to you when we studied the book of Genesis. I think it was Peter Stoner. I forgot the author, but he has, in the back of his book, he has documentation from 300 tribes of people on all the continents except Antarctica recording a, a tradition of a flood, of a gigantic flood which covered the world. Well, you know, how, how in the world could you have a tradition in all these cultures around the world of the same thing without it having been a reality at some point? And the same is true with this. There's, there are Egyptian traditions, there are Chinese traditions, um, there are Indian traditions of a day that was extra long or a night that was extra long. And uh, some even have reported, and I don't have a clue how you could do this, some astronomers have report, reported that somehow there seems to be a day missing from the, from the uh, cosmic clock. Now, I don't know how you'd figure that out, but uh, anyway. And some of these have been astronomers at Yale and Princeton and Harvard and places like that who've been really hushed up by their universities because obviously you don't want to come up with anything that, that validates uh, a book like the Bible. And so all kinds of explanations have been given. God refracted the sun's light so that it shined extra long, but nothing really changed in terms of the sun, earth spinning on its axis. Or the wording just means that God cooled, sent some clouds to cool off the sun because it was so intense on his men, they were getting hot and tired, and therefore they were refreshed and could, could fight twice as long. You know, all kinds of things are said. But you know, the, the wording here is, is fairly clear. And that is, the day was extended. Now, the only way that could happen would be for the earth to be slowed down on its axis. And some have said, no way. To me, the whole thing of being, uh, of saying, okay, let's say God did stop or slow the earth down on its axis. Can you imagine the cataclysmic repercussions of that? Yeah, I could, if God weren't in charge. But if God has the power to slow or stop the earth on its axis, what's to say he doesn't have the power to prevent the cataclysms from happening? You know, to prevent the wind from continuing at the speed it was going when the earth was rotating and so having a 700 mile an hour wind blowing over the surface of the ground. You know, or causing the continental drift to be such that all the continents kind of jam into each other and create new mountains or, or whatever, you know, might be the supposed repercussions of this. I mean, if God can slow the earth on its axis, he can keep everything calm and ordinary and normal. I mean, we have a God who can do that. So. Whatever really happened here, I don't have a problem with the idea that he literally slowed the earth down and gave Joshua more time to do what he had to do. Now we might say, but why? God could have just rained some more hail and gotten rid of the rest of the guys. I, I think what God is doing here is demonstrating his sovereignty and omnipotence in the universe. God can do all things not only set the Red Sea on edge and the Jordan River on edge, but he can actually slow the earth on its axis momentarily and return it to its normal rotation. He makes a statement here as if to prove that this really happened, is it not written in the book of Jasher? Well, the book of Jasher does not exist today, at least nobody knows about it if it does. The book of Jasher was an apparently uh, a book of uh, sort of like epic poetry which recorded events like this. It is also referred to in 2 Samuel, the first chapter, where it is also mentioned that something was recorded in the book of Jasher. Uh, it was obviously not a part of Scripture, but some other outside of Scripture writing that existed at that time. I think to bring it to a conclusion today here, 
that verse 13 may indicate, it says, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged itself. But it goes on to say at the end of verse 13, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day, which could mean that the, the sun, you know, apparently stopped, but then moved down more slowly that God just kind of slowed the earth down in its rotation and let the day kind of stretch out so that there's this forever sunset. Now, I can imagine that because if you've ever flown from Europe back across to North America at either at, at sunset, it seems like the sun sets for hours and hours and hours and hours <laughs> uh, because you're flying into the sunset. And so you almost get this feeling of what Joshua's longest day might have been like, only in the airplane. It's a real nuisance because you're trying to sleep and I don't know. But I, I'm sure it was a nuisance for a lot of people <laughs> around the world who didn't have anything to do with this. But of course, that was their problem. Well, next Sunday, we'll look at uh, the uniqueness of this event and go on and see some other interesting things that occurred in this chapter.